Well, good morning. My name is Anson. I am the young adult and online pastor here at Crossway, and it is a joy to be with you this morning as we continue in our year-long series. We're about six months through, a little over halfway through of our year-long series in the With God journey, looking at how we can walk with God and how people within Scripture walked with God over the course of their lives. But before we jump in today, I want to ask you a question. If you have ever, as, reading, as you're reading the Bible, as you're reading through Scripture, have you ever stopped and asked yourself, this doesn't really belong here? Like, this doesn't seem like it belongs, whether it seems far-fetched that God would include this, whether it's, it's him telling his people to go to war, or whether it's this person struggling in this way, or or something's going on that you're like, that doesn't make sense that the Bible, the, the Word of God, the Word that's supposed to point us to the living God sounds like that. Well, today we're going to look at an entire book that many people, when looking at the book at face value, consider this book not really a book that should be in the Bible. And we're going to look at why, and then we're going to draw some conclusions from that. But before we do that, I'd love to pray for our morning that the Holy Spirit will be the one speaking to us and guiding us as we look into God's Word. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you just for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for how you direct and guide us, how you lead us, how you demonstrate your love to us, how you demonstrated your love to us with your Son on the cross. God, we pray that you lead and guide us this morning, that your spirit speaks to us, and that we hear from your word, and from how you desire us to walk out our with God journeys. So we thank you for this day, we praise you for this day, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're looking at the book of Esther. And Esther, by many people over history, has been considered a secular book within Scripture. That means is that there's things in the book that they're like, this doesn't really belong in the Bible. A couple of those being, this takes place in exile. So there's only two books in the Bible that take place in exile. One is the, uh, the book of Daniel, and the other is the book of Esther, meaning they're not in the promised land that God had promised the people of Israel. So it's, it's out of there. It's in a pagan land in a pagan kingdom where no mention of prayer, no mention of anything like that. And probably, most shockingly, a book in the Bible, and this is the only one, it does not mention the name or anything about God once. So by reading it at face value, if you just read the book of Esther, it's almost like you're reading a Shakespearean comedy with twists and turns and shifts and, and backstabbings and all of these different things. So it doesn't really seem like it belongs in the Bible. It belongs in Scripture. What does it have to teach us? So we're going to look through the book. I'm going to tell the story today. We're going to dive through the entirety of the book of Esther and see, can we find God in here? Is this book actually belonging in the Bible? Does it belong in the Bible? And then see where we can come from that. And just for a little context, history-wise, this book takes place in the middle of Ezra and Nehemiah. So chronologically, Ezra goes to Jerusalem, he's rebuilding the temple, and then a couple years later, a bunch of years later, Nehemiah goes to rebuild the walls. This book takes place in the middle of that. And Esther is one of the people that stayed back in the city of Susa, which is where, which is where this story takes place, and didn't go to Jerusalem. So that's where we are in 
context. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to switch over to Esther, it's right after Nehemiah in your Bible. If not, the text that I will be reading will be on the screen. We'll be jumping around quite a bit this morning. But the story starts with the king, King Xerxes, throwing a banquet for 180 days. It's a feast. Half the year he's throwing a party. And then his, his queen at the same time is throwing a party herself. And then once the 180-day party ends, he's like, we need another party. So he throws another seven-day party. And at this seven-day party, he, he's like, I want to show off my queen. I want to show her off. I want to show her to everybody. So he sends some of his centurions to go get her and bring her so he can gallivant her around and show off her beauty. And she refuses. She will not come. Which throws the king into an uproar, throws his people into uproar, enough so that they make some drastic changes. And then his centurions and the people around him suggest, hey, since she didn't, she, she didn't come, she didn't come and, and see you when you had asked her, we, we should set up this thing where we get all of the beautiful virgins around and bring them in front of you and you can choose which one's your favorite to be your new queen. We can forget about Vashti. We can forget about your former queen, and you can choose a new one. So the king, which as we'll learn over the course of the story, he, he's a bumbling idiot. <laughs> he, he really, like anything anybody says to him, he does. He just puts his stamp of approval on it. So like the bumbling idiot he, did, he is, he says, sure, we'll do that. So all of these beautiful women get brought, and this is where we meet Esther. And Esther is this, this Jewish woman who, who is raised by his, her, her cousin, Mordecai, her parents died, her cousin Mordecai, who's a key figure in the story, comes alongside and raises her. And then it's her time. So she's one of the, one of the people that's going to be shown to the king. It's her time to go in front of the king. And that's what we're going to pick up in Esther 2, verses 15 through 18, where it says, When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday through the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. So Esther, a Jewish woman, becomes queen in a pagan kingdom. In a kingdom where this, this is not where God's people are lifted up. And then what happens after that is, is probably more shocking, is, is Mordecai, who's just sitting in the king's court, is just sitting in the king's court, learns about this plot to go and kill the king. Now, if we're talking about bumbling idiots, we've got the king, and then we've got these two people who wanted to kill the king, who are openly discussing their plot to kill the most important person in the kingdom in front of other people. But Mordecai learns about this, and then because Esther is in power, tells Esther, hey, this is about to happen. Esther tells the king, and then Mordecai gets praised for it. The king gets saved, and the two people get killed. This is where we pick up in Esther 2, 19 through 23. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. 
But Esther had kept, her, her, kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. So Esther has not made known to the king or anybody around the king that she is Jewish. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the door, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles, and all of this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. Now that last line, that it was recorded in the book of Annals, will be important for us later, so remember that. We then see the story continues. So this happens, and then it sort of switches to this guy named Haman. And Haman's this bad dude, but Haman gets promoted up through the ranks. And as he's getting promoted, he, he asks these people to, to bow down to him because he's, he's getting glory and he's rising in fame. So everybody's bowing down other than Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. And this infuriates Haman. Makes him so furious that he says, I don't, eat, I don't only want to hurt Mordecai, I also want to kill all of his people. So then he goes to the king and is like, hey, I really hate these people. I think we should kill them all. And the king's like, sure, why not? And puts his stamp on it. So this edict gets written that all of Mordecai and Esther's people, the Jewish race, the Jewish nation, that God had set forth in Genesis, that the line of Jesus would come through, was going to be murdered and brutally, um, brutally taken from this earth the day before Passover. And that they had no ability to defend themselves, against the law to defend themselves. So Mordecai figures out this plot and says, all right, hey, I need to do something about this. So then Esther, being the queen, he's like, I'll talk to her. So he sends to Esther, telling Esther of this plot, and that's where we pick it up in chapter 4, 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows whether you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now that phrase is really popular, and we're going to come back to these couple verses in a bit. But what Mordecai is asking Esther to do, to go into the king's courts, is not really that easy of a thing. See, in the book of Esther, it says that she hadn't been into the king's courts, into his place, for 30 days because he hadn't called her. And the punishment for going into the king's courts without being called was there would be a guard standing there with an axe, and if the king didn't like that you were there, he would say, guard, and the guard would cut off your head. So the punishment for Esther doing this would be death. So what Mordecai is asking her to do is to risk her life for her people. And then the story continues with Esther going to the king, the king welcoming her, and actually saying, hey, if you want, you can have half my kingdom. But Esther's like, no, 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 let me throw a party for you and Haman. So she throws a party, and then that night, Haman gets really mad at Mordecai again and says, I, don't, I, I still want to kill all of his people, but I also want to kill him, like right now. 
So with his wife and his friends, they devise a plot. They set up these gallows right outside. And, and the next day, he's about to be killed. He's about to go hang Mordecai. So they go to bed. Esther has asked for another gathering with Haman and the king the next day. Hasn't asked for any deliverance for her people, but continues to, to say, hey, I want to just meet with you. I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you. And then we read this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of Chronicles. Remember that book that we talked about? The record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has, been, has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, they answered. So what we see is the night, the night before Mordecai is about to be hung on these gallows, impaled on these poles, the king can't sleep. Asks for this book that records that Mordecai told of this, exposed this plot to kill the king. And then in the morning asks, so what, what, what praise has been given to him? And they're like, nothing. So then here's the, the Shakespearean comedy of it. He asks, the king asks, who's in the court? And they're like, Haman's in the court. So he brings Haman in and asks, what, should, what honor should we bestow upon someone that I want to honor? And Haman, thinking it's himself because he's risen in the ranks, says all these glorious things. Put robes on him, crown, take him through the town on a horse, praise them, give them so many things. And then the king says, all right, Haman, go do that for Mordecai. So Haman, the one who was going to murder Mordecai that day, then ended up parading Mordecai around, praising him, saying, this is what happens if you do good. And then later that day, Esther holds another banquet with Haman and the king. And at this banquet, Esther says, I, I need deliverance for my people. This is going to happen. This man said, hey, you, I want to murder the entire Jewish nation. I want to or murder the entire Jewish race. Can you please save my people? And the king, having found favor with, with Esther, says, who did this? And again, points back to the bumbling idiot that he is, that he didn't know who wrote the edict that he stamped to murder an entire people group. And Esther goes, the evil man Haman. So in Shakespearean comedic fashion, Haman that day gets hung on the gallows that he set up for Mordecai to be hung that day. And then we find, as we continue to read in Esther 8, what happens after that. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Now, this is important to know because the document that Haman had the king write, it can't be revoked. So now the king gives Esther and Mordecai the ability to, to write a decree to save their people. But they can't write a decree that will reverse the other one. So what they have to do is they have to write a counter one. So what they do is they say, all right, we're going to write a decree that 
our people can defend themselves on that day. And the king stamps that, and they send that to all the provinces. And then as you read and continue to read in the book of Esther, you see that, that the Jewish people, they completely trounce King Xerxes' people. They completely trounce the people that Haman wanted to kill them. Haman's ten sons get hung. Mordecai rises to power. And the Jewish people, the line that God had set up from Genesis to then come, Jesus to come out of, is saved. This holiday of Purim, which is a Jewish holiday that is still practiced this day, is then put in practice. Which is, it's sort of a combination of Thanksgiving, Halloween, and Christmas, where they feast, they dress up, and they give gifts to the poor. And this holiday is to celebrate the deliverance of their people from Haman and his evil plots. And on that day, the entire book of Esther is read in front of everybody, and every time Haman's name comes up, he's booed, and they have noisemakers, which Jake is using in Milford. Every time he reads the name Haman, he has people with noisemakers. I decided to save you from that. Um, But it's this holiday to celebrate the deliverance of the Jewish people. And then the book ends with no mention of God, with no mention of God delivering them, with no mention of any of that. Hence why this book of history of the Jewish people being delivered from being destroyed to then being able to live, and then we read in Nehemiah, more Jewish people going to Jerusalem. This is why that people have not considered this book to be a biblical book. They've considered it to be a secular book because all it tells about is history. But I would like to offer a counterpoint. The Bible would like to offer a counterpoint. That this book, more than maybe any other book in the Bible, shows and demonstrates God's providence. And God's providence meaning his support, his supply, him being with his people, him always working, him always being at work. That God is the one causing each of these different things, each of these events to happen. That God is moving in order to save his people, moving on behalf of his people. There's eight different things that we talk about, but we read, about, and I'll put those up on the screen in a second, but we read also in John, John 5, Jesus is talking about God's providence. So it says here in John 5, 17, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. This is Jesus talking, so it's not in the time of Esther, but what it is demonstrating is the fact that God is always moving. And that we don't need to hear God's name in order to know that he is moving, but we are just able to know that God is moving and moving on behalf of his people, delivering his people. And there's eight different things I wanted to outline from the book that demonstrate God's providence. The first is, A Jewish woman, Esther, becomes queen in a pagan kingdom. That's not normal. That doesn't happen. Right? You would choose someone from your own kingdom, someone who would have your beliefs. Now she hid her her Jewish heritage, but still God made it possible for her to rise up above any of the other women. We find Mordecai finding out about the plot to kill, kill Xerxes. He was just sitting in the court. 
And now because he found out and Esther was queen, they had a way to get it so that the king knew. And that would build up Mordecai and allow it so that God could use Mordecai later on. We see that Mordecai urges Esther to go to King Xerxes, and then the king welcomes her. Someone who was not invited into the king's courts, but yet God allowed the king to welcome her in and say, I will do whatever you ask. And maybe this one is the one that probably sticks in my mind is maybe the, the biggest one showing God working God's providence is that the king wakes up the night before Mordecai is about to, kill, about to be killed. That The king wakes up and sees and hears and reads about Mordecai and how he saved the king and that realized that, hey, we didn't praise this person when he should have been. Let's praise him today. Like that, that doesn't happen without God intervening. We see that Haman is the one, almost comedically, I see God's humor saying, Haman, you're going to be the one that praises Mordecai. We see Haman killed on the gallows built for Mordecai. We see that the Jewish race is saved, and that we see that Mordecai is then given and risen into power, which then impacts the kingdom for years on end. So now Esther's queen and Mordecai is second in command. See, in this book of Esther, God is nowhere and absolutely everywhere. He is nowhere to be found in a, in a literature way. Like, he is not there. God's name is not there. For whatever reason, God did not want his name in this book. And I think that reason is to show that God is always working, is moving, is working in the minute, is working in the finite, is working in the day-to-day, is working in the mundane. God doesn't have to have this big, grandiose thing for us to know he's working, but we know and are able to see that he is working at all times, that he is providing and supplying what his people need at all times. And this leaves us with, right? So we started with, is this book actually, does it belong in the Bible? And then we, we looked at the story of Esther and see God's handprint all over it. And now what do we do with that? We see that God is working. How, how does that impact our lives? How does a book that doesn't mention God, doesn't give any instruction, doesn't even really mention much spiritually, other than Esther fasting once, how does this impact our lives? And I think we're going to look back at Esther 4, 12 through 14, which I'll read for us again, which says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, in those verses, you see that Esther has a choice. She has a choice to say, I'm going to go into the king's courts. I'm going to plead for my people. I'm going to beg to save the Jewish people. Or she has a choice to say, I'm going to care for myself. I'm going to care for my own well-being. I'm going to care for for." For my safety, I don't want to lose my life. I don't want to get my head chopped off, so I'm going to care for myself. But even more than that, we see another thing. We see Mordecai say, and if you don't, 
Relief and deliverance will come from someone else. Relief and deliverance will come from somewhere else. So whether you choose or not, God is going to work on behalf of his people, but you have the opportunity to be used by God. And how this plays in our life. Right? We, we have a choice. We have a choice to join God in what he is doing here and now. Because if we believe that God is working, we believe that God is, is providential, that he is always supplying what his people need, that he will provide relief and deliverance, if we believe that, then we are able to join him because we already know he's working here. But even more than that, and I think this is humbling and sobering, we have to realize that for God to be and God's providence to go forward and for God to work and for God to do what he plans on doing, that if we choose not to join him, that's still going to happen. Like God doesn't need us for his providence to go forward. But he wants us to be used. He wants us. He wants you. He wants me to be used for his purposes, for his will. See, he didn't need Esther to save the Jewish people, but he wanted Esther to save the Jewish people. And I think sometimes in my own life and in, in people around me, I, I see that we, we think we're really important when it comes to these things. We think, I need to do this. I need to do this for God. I need to do these things. Whether it be, I need to talk to this person, I need to talk to this person, I need to read my Bible, I need to pray. Yeah, those are great things. Those are things that God asks us to do, commands us to do, wants us to do, but that's the key word. See, God, for him to work and for his will to go forward and his providence to go forward, he doesn't need us to do those things, but he wants us to do those things because the people who are robbed are us when we don't. See, if we, if we don't go talk to that person that the Holy Spirit has urged us to go talk to about, about God, we are the ones being robbed of the joy and the love that God provides in sharing his word. When, when we don't read our Bible, we are being robbed of what God is asking us to do. We, we're being robbed of, of the love and the joy and the peace that God provides in his word. When we don't pray, we're being robbed of the loving, joyful, relationship that we get to have with Jesus. See, the only one that loses out here is us. Because he doesn't need us to go forward, but he wants us so that he can go forward with us. This with God journey. God wants to walk with you. He wants to, to journey with you, to, to walk with you in your work, in your, in your family, in your home, in your sports. He wants to walk with you. He has extended this invitation. Will you join God here? Will you walk with God here in where you are right now? See, this book, Esther, takes place in a pagan kingdom, in exile, away from God, away from the promised land, away from anything spiritual, without the mention of God, without anything like that. Yet we see God working every day. We see God working in every minor detail. And then we over here, we live in the least churched area of the country. 
a ch- a, an area that has the least amount of people attending church, the least amount of people hearing the gospel on a weekly basis, the least amount of people hearing Jesus' name on a weekly basis. Will you join God here? Yes, Esther and Mordecai joined God in a pagan land, in exile, away from God. Will you join God here? In a place that needs the gospel in a place that needs Jesus' name, in a place that needs people to come alongside the with God life, the with God journey. Will you join God here? And that begs the question, if if your answer is yes, if you say, yes, I will join God here, I will join God in what he is already doing here, that begs the question, how do you do that? And I think the common answer that you'd hear in a sermon, the common answer would be pray, read your Bible, fast. And yes, do all of those. Absolutely do all of those. Important, vital for the kingdom of God to be moving forward. But alongside that, I think there's three things we can take from the book of Esther that speak profoundly into how we can join God in our context today. And the first is trust. Trust that God is moving. Trust God's providence. Trust that God cares about his people and will deliver his people. See, Mordecai, when he was going to to Esther, he didn't try to read the hidden hand of providence. See, providence is able to look back on, is able to be looked back on with clarity. But forward on, try to look forward on providence. What is God doing here? How is God using this? It's really hazy. It's really fuzzy. Mordecai looked back on it with clarity, but he did not say, hey, I know what God is using this. He said, you don't know why you're here, Esther, but you may be here for such a time as this for a purpose. And I think that meets us where we are today. That can meet you where you are today. In your job, in your home, in your your family, in this church, whether things are going great or you feel like the walls are crumbling around you, whether life is looking joyful or you feel like you just don't want to get out of bed, what if God has you there and is going to use you there for a purpose? doesn't mean you're going to stay there. What if God has you in the space you are for such a time as this to be used for his name and his glory and his love? What if he will use that to build his kingdom? So do you trust that God is working in your life and working around you in the space you are right now? Not waiting for God to fix all these things up in order to be used. Not waiting for God to fix all these things up to know that he's moving. But knowing that he's moving now and that he will be with you and he will comfort you and he will love you and he will cherish you now. That God's promise of deliverance for his people doesn't only talk about other people. It talks about you. That God will deliver you. That God will walk with you and he will show you his love. And I think the second thing is listen. Listen to God. Listen to his Holy Spirit. Listen to how he is speaking to you and guiding you and leading you and what he is asking you to do. 
See, the one spiritual thing in the book of Esther is the fact that right after Esther says, sure, I'll go to the king, I'm going to fast, and everybody else, please fast for three days. And we're going to listen for God. See, fasting is a great practice for that, but I think one of the things we talk about a lot of times here at Crossway is we need space in order to listen. Sometimes we, we spend so much time creating busyness in our life and not creating margin to listen that we never end up hearing the Word of God or hearing God's whispers in our ears or hearing how the Holy Spirit is nudging us or guiding us or leading us because we're so busy and we're not creating that margin. See, Esther, in the space that she had to listen, she said, let's set aside three days to listen. Let's set aside three days to listen how God is going to move. Let's set aside three days to watch God move in and through us. So where do you need to listen to what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do today? Whether that be talking to a coworker, whether that be loving your neighbor better, whether that be sharing the gospel with your friends, or whether that be to call upon the name of Jesus because you haven't yet. Whether that to be to hear the news of who Jesus is and what he did for you and to accept him as, as father and to accept his love and his grace. Where do you need to listen? And I think lastly, this one may be obvious, but the lastly, you need to act. You can trust and you can listen, but if you don't act, these two, very little importance. Right? Because I can trust that God is moving. I can know that God is moving. I can listen to what he's saying. But if I don't act upon what he's asking me to do, if I don't do what God is asking me to do, if I don't trust in what God is doing in and through me and in and through my situations and in and through the spaces I'm in, if I don't act upon that, then what, am I, what, what is that for? What is the trust and the listening for? So we need to trust that God is moving around us, that God is providential, that he is supplying and supporting everything that everybody else needs and everything that you need. He will, is the giver of all and will supply and sustain you. Do, do we listen for where the Holy Spirit is nudging us? Whether that to be to love our neighbor, love our kids, love our spouse, love our coworker. Where is the Holy Spirit leaning into you to say, listen, and then, are you acting upon it? Are you acting upon what God is asking you to do? So that's my challenge this week from the book of Esther, is to trust in God's providence, to listen to what God is doing in and through you and to the Holy Spirit's nudges in your life, and then to act upon it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for how you move in our lives. We thank you for, while a book that seems so far from a book that would be in Scripture, we thank you for how it mightily shows how you work and your power and your might and your love and your grace in everything that you do. So Lord, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for everything you do. And we ask that you help us to trust you, to listen to you, and to act upon that. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.